John 20, verses 1 to 23. It's appropriate in the Lord's timing that on Independence Day, we are looking at the resurrection. True freedom. True independence. John 20, verses 1 to 23. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning as we gather here together as your church, we come boldly in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Our hope this morning is not in our works. Our hope this morning is not in anything that we have done. Our hope this morning is not in this great country in which you have given us the freedom that we have to worship. Our hope this morning is in Christ alone. We know that you hear us in Christ alone. It is to that hope that we cling. It is in that hope this morning that we rejoice. And we pray that as we look at this passage, that your spirit would work through the word in each and every one of our lives. That you would encourage us, those of us who are downtrodden. That you would challenge those of us who have strayed. That you would call us to go and to proclaim this good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in him. And Father, I pray that you would give me boldness this morning to proclaim the word of God with authority, with clarity, that you would be honored in all that is said and done. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. Amen. We come to John 20, 1 to 23, last week. We finished up John 19. We saw the cross of Christ. It's a difficult passage. We returned to it this morning in Mark and Sunday school. As we look at the cross of Christ, as we look at his suffering, his body that is broken, his blood that is spilt. And as we see that, we recognize, we know that that is for me. That is my cross, the weight of my sin. And as we came to, saw, to see last week, the, the, the great irony in the book of John, a, a book which John loves irony. In fact, the great irony in all of the Gospels is that the cross of Christ, which should bring shame, brings the greatest glory to Jesus Christ. And, and that is what we celebrate this morning as we come to John 21 to 23, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As you work your way through the Gospels, you may have noticed this as we're going through Mark in Sunday school and John in Sunday morning. You may have noticed that there's some differences. Those differences come because their story is being told from two different perspectives with two different purposes. So as we come to the resurrection, 
John has some purposes in this passage. There's some things that he is specifically trying to get across to us. Three things. And you'll see this all throughout the passage. He's, he's trying to first proclaim the truth of the resurrection. Jesus is alive. Secondly, as he proclaims that truth, he's defending the reality of the resurrection. He is alive, and here is the evidence of it. And finally, in this passage, John instructs believers how to live in light of the resurrection. He proclaims the truth of the resurrection, he defends the reality of the resurrection, and then he instructs believers how to live in light of the resurrection. You'll see that all throughout as we move through this passage this morning. We'll see three points. An empty tomb, a living Savior, and an active mission. First thing we see this morning in verses 1 to 10 is a live, an empty tomb. As you come to the end of Chapter 19, verse 42, it says this, So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. It's Joseph and Nicodemus who have taken Jesus from the cross. Joseph went and, and talked to Pilate, got the body. Nicodemus got the spices. They, they put it together, put him in the tomb. But as you remember, as we come to the end of chapter 19, this is all done in a great hurry. It's a day of preparation. The, the Sabbath is quickly approaching and they have to get this done. They have to get home. So as we come to chapter 20, it starts now the first day of the week. We left on Friday night, the day of preparation. Now we pick up Sunday morning, the first day of the week. First day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. Jesus' burial was done in such a hurry on the day of preparation that Mary and the other women hurry to the tomb as early as possible. Mark tells us that they have spices. They don't know necessarily what Nicodemus and Joseph have done. All they know is he was taken. They know the tomb. They followed him at least to the tomb. They know where he was, but they don't know exactly what has been done. They think as they go to this tomb that there is still work to do. We see in passages like Matthew 28, 1, Mark 16, 1, Luke 23, uh, and, and 24, 20, 23, 55 to 24, 1, that there's other women who, here who are with Mary. Mary's the one that John focuses on. But they go to this tomb early. There's work to do. I think in our minds, we often just jump, as Scripture does here, from Friday night to Sunday morning. But how long that Sabbath must have been. How empty of hope that Sabbath must have been. How long those hours must have ticked by as they are waiting, as they know that Jesus is in this tomb. They know that there's still work to do and they long to go and to do it. 
And you see that right here in the tomb early while it was still dark, as early as possible. So as Mary and these other women come approaching the tomb, they saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. That the fact that the stone had been moved was clear evidence of activity. And what's interesting is that Mark or John here doesn't even record for us that these women go and look just that they see that the stone has been moved. They see that there has been activity and they turn and run. They go to Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved whom we know to be John. And they said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. They have taken away the Lord. I don't even know who that they is. They just know that, that from their perspective, what they have seen is that there has been evidence of movement. Something has happened. It could be grave robbers. Grave robbing was a regular occurrence in that day. The spices and the cloths that were used were both pretty valuable. It could be grave robbers. It could be the Romans who, after giving permission, have changed their minds. No, we don't want you to put him in his own tomb. We're going to put him in a mass tomb grave. We're going to do what we want with him. It could be the religious leaders who have come and have moved him for their own purposes, their own protection. It could be the owner of the tomb who has changed his mind. They don't know who has moved him. They don't know where he is. They don't even know where to start looking. This is a tragedy. Peter, therefore, went out, and the other disciple, John, and they were going to the tomb. Upon this news, they take out immediately, they go running. They both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter. I think it's hilarious that John includes that in there. You know, this is John who's writing, and he's the one who outruns him. We ran, but I just want everyone to know for all eternity, I was faster. I beat him. I'm putting this in scripture. The other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw all the linen cloths lying there. That's kind of our first clue that something odd has happened here. It's odd that if they were grave robbers, they would, not, they would have left the expensive linen cloths and the spices. That would be the whole point of robbing a grave, was to take that. And if it were the Romans or the religious leaders or the owner of the tomb, it would not make sense for them to leave the cloths and take the body. It'd be much easier to move a body that is wrapped than to unwrap it and just take the body. Why would you do that? Clearly something odd has happened here. Yet John doesn't go in. He just pauses and looks. Leave it to Peter to come and just to barrel in, to throw caution to the wind, and to rush right into the tomb. This is the Peter we've come to know. Following him and went into the tomb. And like John, he saw the linen cloths lying there. And he's seen something more that John was not able to see, the handkerchief that had been around his head. Not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. 
Not only are these linen cloths left behind, but the handkerchief that had been over his head is folded neatly. Why would grave robbers leave the expensive cloths? And why would anyone take the time to fold this handkerchief and leave it neatly? This is not like the chaos or the mess that you would expect from someone moving the body or robbing a grave. What has happened here is careful. What has happened here is purposeful. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, John, went in also. And he saw and believed. John does not fully grasp the resurrection. John does not fully grasp the implications of the resurrection, but he sees and he believes that Jesus is alive. John had here adds an interesting note, for as yet to this point, they, the disciples, did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. This is not something they were expecting. Which begs the question, how in the world did they miss this? It's clear. If you go turn with me to Luke 24. In Luke 24, verses 44 to 46, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus says this. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. It's there. It's in the Old Testament. And passages like Psalm 16.10, Isaiah 53.10-12, Hosea 6.2, in fact, look with me, if you will, at Mark. Mark chapter 8. Verses 31 to 33. It's a passage following Peter's confession of Christ. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. I mean, this is Jesus sitting down teaching his disciples this. How did they miss this? That seems like something I'd kind of, if it were me, stick in the back of my head to kind of remember. Jesus is telling us that he's going to die and rise again in three days. But knowing myself, I would react no different than the disciples. In fact, look at how Peter reacts. He spoke this word openly, plainly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Gives us a little clue into the disciples' mindset during Jesus' ministry. The Old Testament had clearly said this. Jesus had clearly taught them this. And yet somehow they missed this. But that's not altogether contrary to what we've come to know of the disciples or to what we know of ourselves, is it? In fact, this interesting note here, the disciples did not expect this. They did not yet know the scripture they must rise from the dead. What we see is that the disciples' ignorance of the Bible and of Jesus' very teaching is actually evidence of the reality of the resurrection. If the disciples did not understand from Old Testament prophecy and Jesus' teaching that Jesus had to rise from the dead, then they would not have faked a resurrection. It would make no sense for them to set this up themselves. They don't even expect it or think it's coming. So here, John gives us more evidence of the resurrection. He's proclaimed the tomb is empty. He's put forth two witnesses who have looked in the tomb. According to Old Testament law, two witnesses were required for something to be uh, acceptable in court. Both John and Peter stand forth as witnesses who have looked into the empty tomb, who have seen the cloths. John himself, seeing, believes. He doesn't really know what he believes or yet. He doesn't understand what God is doing. He just knows the tomb is empty and Jesus is not there. So as we come to the end of these first ten verses, the disciples went away again to their own homes. We have as an empty grave, empty grave clothes, a folded headcloth, but still no Jesus. An empty tomb. As you come to verse 11 to 20 then, we see a living Savior. Apparently at some point after the disciples go home, Mary comes back to the tomb. She has not apparently crossed paths with John and Peter again. They have not told her of the conclusion that they have come to, that Jesus has risen, because here she is, we find her in verse 11, still weeping. Mary stood outside by the tomb, weeping. In grief, she returns to the tomb to mourn. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet with the body of Jesus had lain. The introduction of these angels helps us to see what John already sees and believes. Even if he does not fully understand that something supernatural is going on here. Before, all we've had to this point is an empty tomb and empty cloths. Now we have angels. Something unique is going on. God is doing something here. In fact, their response to Mary clues us in even more. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? It's an odd question to ask at a tomb. 
but not this tomb. Why are you weeping? The angel's question is a rebuke to Mary for her hopelessness, and they call to look for hope. Why are you weeping? The reaction which we see here, this is not the right reaction. This is not how you should be responding. What has happened here is not cause for weeping, but rejoicing. Mary Steele doesn't get it yet as we see her response. She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, I don't know where they have laid him. Again, all throughout this passage, I find things that just seem funny to me. John outrunning Peter. I find it funny here that John writes it as if Mary's just having a normal conversation with two angels and hasn't dawned on her the fact that she's talking to two angels. She just responds normally. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. How could that be? How could Jesus be standing there and Mary not recognize that this is Jesus, the one for whom she is looking? Likely, if she realizes that she is talking to angels, her, her, uh, she is in shock somewhat. Her eyes are cloudy with tears. It is early in the morning. Mary does not recognize Jesus because Mary is not looking for Jesus. I met Krista in Michigan at a camp, Camp Kobiak. I came up from South Carolina one summer to work and to counsel. She came over from Iowa. We met there. At the end of the summer, we went our separate ways. She came back to Iowa. I went back to South Carolina. And we stayed in contact. And a couple months went by. And I remember I had a big soccer game coming up, and I was excited about it, and I was telling her uh, about my upcoming soccer game. And that weekend, I went over to my grandparents' house for a meal before going to my soccer game, and I walk in the front door, and Krista was sitting right there. She had flown in to surprise me. And I, I just kind of like looked at her. And I remember the thoughts running through my head were, Surely something's going on. This is not Krista. Like, I was just talking to her on the phone. She's not here. She can't be here, even though she was there. In fact, she told me later that she was a little disappointed in my reaction. She was expecting me to go, what? <laughs> and I was just more like, what are you doing here? <laughs> I, was just, I was in shock. I wasn't looking for her to be there. I wasn't expecting it. Mary's problem is that she is not looking for Jesus. He said to her, woman, why are you weeping? He repeats the question of the angels. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? You are looking in the wrong place and you are reacting in the wrong way. She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, teacher. Mary immediately recognizes Jesus' voice, and everything changes. 
John 10, verses 2 to 4 and 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I know them by name. He says her name, and she knows him. Eyes blinded by grief are suddenly opened in joy. Her perspective is, is, is completely changed, as Jesus promised. In John 16, 20 to 22, your sorrow will turn into joy. In fact, turn over there with me. John 16, 20 to 22. I know we've been turning a lot. But when you work through a book, there's so many things that come up that we've seen before. It's hard not to. John 16, 20 to 22. Jesus says this, Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. That's what we see being fulfilled here. Her sorrow is turned into joy. On a side note, along with one of John's purposes of proving Jesus' resurrection, it's remarkable to note that Jesus' first post-resurrection appearance is to a woman. If this were a story that someone was making up, that would not make sense for them to do that. There's a strong apologetic detail in a culture that did not very highly value women. A woman's, a woman's testimony was very low in importance. It was not accepted in court. So if this were something that the disciples or someone else had made up, why would they put a woman to be the first one to testify of his resurrection? Why not someone like Peter or John, these great apostles? Also, secondly, not only is it a strong apologetic detail in a culture that did not very highly view women, it's a strong statement of Jesus' view of women and their importance. He appears to Mary. He cares for her. An empty tomb. A living Savior. He's not done. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. That's kind of a difficult passage, verse 17 here. Do not cling to me. The problem is not that Mary touches Jesus. It's not that he has some special, unique body that cannot be touched. In fact, later he tells Thomas, place your hands in my side, touch me, and see. The problem it's in the fact that Mary is clinging to him. 
In essence, what Jesus is saying here is, yes, rejoice in the resurrection, yet recognize that Jesus must ascend. Our hope is not in Jesus' physical presence, but in his completed work. In a sense, Mary's clinging to Jesus here borders on idolatry. She is clinging to her idea of Jesus rather than trusting in God's plan for Jesus. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, Jesus' state of resurrection would not be full and complete until he should sit down in heaven at the right side of the Father. Therefore, the women do wrong in satisfying themselves with having nothing more than the half of his resurrection and desiring to enjoy his presence in the world. Do not cling to me. Now is not the time to mourn, but to rejoice, as we saw in the last few verses. And now he says, now is not the time to sit, but to go, to be active. I am ascending. Go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending. Again, it's interesting there that Mary is not told to proclaim his resurrection. Jesus doesn't say, go to my brothers and say, I'm alive. The tomb is empty. Go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending. Don't say that I live. Say that I am going to my father. It is at the ascension that Christ's glory is brought to completion as he returns to the father and takes his rightful place. See that in passages like Philippians 2, 8 to 11. John 16, 28, Jesus says, I came from the Father, I am going to the Father. It's not finished with the resurrection. So often as we work our way through this, one of the speakers made this point at the GARBC conference this week, uh, which thank you very much for sending uh, us. We, uh, it, was a, it was a very good conference. We greatly enjoyed it. But one of them made the same point. So often we focus just on the cross and the resurrection and we ignore the ascension or we just kick it aside. The ascension is key to the glory of Jesus. In fact, we've seen that all throughout the book of John. He says, my time has come. The glory, he's looking forward not just to the cross and the resurrection, but to his ascension. As he ascends to the Father, as he takes his place at the right hand of the Father. As all that is rightfully his is restored to him. I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Jesus lives and he will fulfill every promise that he has made to his brethren. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, that he had spoken these things to her. how she must have run with renewed vigor and excitement. What exciting news this is to share. How she must have stammered between gulps of breath to tell them, this is what I have seen. This is what he has said. He's seen by Mary and the women at the tomb. As you come to verse 19 to 20, then he is seen by the disciples that same day. 
And the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Again, they're assembled in this room with locked doors for fear of the Jews. In these days between his death and his resurrection, they've been assembled in this locked room. Not only is their Savior gone, not only is Jesus gone, the one whom they love, the one in whom they had put their hopes. And as John said, he is gone, and, and they have no idea of a coming resurrection. But at the same time, they think that the Jews might come for them. So they are locked in this room, and Jesus came and stood in the midst. Those who had seen the empty tomb now see the risen Savior. And he said to them, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. He repeats it actually. He says to them again in verse 21, Peace to you. Peace be with you. It's a common Jewish greeting. But as Jesus says it here, there is huge theological significance. In John 14, 22, he said, My peace I give to you. As I am going, as I am leaving, I am giving you my peace. In fact, in Isaiah 9, 6, looking forward, he is the Prince of Peace. What is it that the angels proclaimed at his birth? Peace on earth! In Luke 2, 14, He's the one who brings peace. Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, the glory's proof of his triumph over death. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. That is the understatement of forever. <laughs> they were glad. It comes across very weakly in English. The idea is a state of happiness. Again, going back to that same promise that Jesus said in John 16, 20 to 22 that we saw he fulfilled with Mary, he fills with, fulfills with his disciples. Your sorrow will be turned into joy. You've seen an empty tomb and now Mary and the woman and the disciples and us, we've seen a living Savior. Finally, in these last few verses, verses 21 to 23, we see an act of mission. So, Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. We see that again, John 17, verse 18, he says that. As the Father has sent me, as you have sent me, I am sending them. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. It's a call to go. And when he had said this, that I, as I have been sent, so I'm sending you, and he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. That's kind of an odd passage. That's a verse that, if you're paying attention, strikes you and, hold on, what, what's going on here? Because this is what we know from Scripture. We know that the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. 
We know that before Pentecost, as Acts, even in Acts 1.8, they do not yet have the Spirit. It's still future, Jesus tells them. In Acts 2.1-3, it comes. So what is it that's going on here? Likely what this is is simply a renewed pledge of Jesus, now the resurrected Savior, to send the Spirit. It is the resurrected Savior on the other side of the grave reiterating the promise that he had given them before the resurrection. My death does not change this. In fact, it is the means by which this comes. It is a pledge of the resurrected Savior to send the Spirit. He is coming, a helper. Paraclete, like, one like, in the same manner. So go, as the Father sent me, I also send you. It's a call to go. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit as a promise to empower. I am sending you, but I'm not sending you alone. I will empower you. I will be with you. It's the same thing that we've seen all throughout his farewell discourse. He's reassured them time and time again. I am going, but I am not leaving you alone. I am not leaving you ill-equipped. Go and be empowered to go. Verse 23 fills us in on what is the purpose of this going. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Go boldly and proclaim the gospel. This is not a promise of special power that you specifically as my apostles, that you can forgive sins. It's a call to go and preach, trusting confidently that the message of the gospel is true. In light of what Jesus says here, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What this means is that I can, with confidence, assure the Christian of their acceptance and forgiveness in Christ. I can't forgive your sins but I can assure you that your sins are forgiven because of what Jesus has done. Not only that, but it's also an urgent and sincere love that I must proclaim the reality of God's justice and the promise of condemnation to all who do not believe. Just as surely as I can assure a brother or a sister in Christ that they are forgiven with the same surety and with an urgent and sincere love, I can assure those who are not in Christ that it is hell that awaits them. That there is condemnation for their sins. That God is just and he will not overlook their sins, but that there is a penalty for their sin that must be paid unless they will turn to Jesus Christ alone in faith. What verse 23 does is it gives me confidence to share the gospel of a resurrected Savior. Your sins are forgiven. And if you are not trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, your condemnation is sure. So we come to the end of this passage. John's purpose is to proclaim the truth. It is true. I have seen this. The tomb was empty. 
I saw his hands and his side. To defend the reality of the resurrection, not only is it true, it is sure. And he gives all this evidence throughout the two witnesses who go to the tomb. Mary and the women who see Jesus. The disciples who see Jesus in the upper room. And then he instructs believers how to live in light of the resurrection. Go and tell. Go and tell. Two points of application. How do we respond to a passage like this? Number one, believer rejoice. A passage like this should fill our hearts with joy. Rejoice in the resurrected Savior. Rejoice. Understand what this means for you. That Jesus is alive. That your hope is sure. The resurrection gives us hope in all of life. Secondly, the resurrection gives us purpose. Jesus does not just save us and rise and he goes to heaven and we, as the church, kind of stay here behind and just sit around and twiddle our thumbs and wait for him to come back. We have a purpose here. And that purpose is to go and to tell. It is to proclaim. We rejoice in the resurrection and we proclaim the resurrection. We love to tell good news, do we not? Proclaim the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Proclaim it boldly and confidently and joyfully. Proclaim it soberly and urgently to those who have not believed. In fact, if you are here this morning, and as we've looked at this passage, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I would ask you, and what are you trusting in this morning? Has there ever been a time in your life when you have placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation? Because the message of the resurrection and the message of the cross is that you cannot save yourself. Your sin condemns you. The Bible says we are all sinners and the wages of sin, what you earn because of your sin, what is rightfully yours because of your sin is death, separation from God, hell. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus Christ died in your place. He took your death and he offers you his life if you will just believe. The resurrection, the cross and the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus do not call us to try harder, but to believe. That's the simple message. Believe. Trust. Place your faith in Christ alone. And if you've never done that, in just a second, we're going to close with a song, Weep No More. And as we close with that song, if you have any questions, I'd encourage you, just come to the front.
And you can bow at one of these seats here and you can pray, you can grab me, and I would love nothing more than to take you aside to open the Word of God, to point you to Christ, and to answer your questions. So if you have any questions, I'd encourage you to do that. Christian, maybe as we look at this passage, maybe a fire's been restirred in you again. Take a second to pause. As we sing, as we proclaim the truths, weep no more. Maybe take a second to pray at your seat, to refocus, to meditate on the truth of the resurrection and what that means for you for eternity and what that means for you today to go and tell. Commit to go and tell.